When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service with more than 5,000 lectures. For a limited time only, listeners of the Culture Gab Fest can stream one of the most popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Art of Cooking, for free. Just visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. And by Bolin Branch, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at bolinbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-N branch.com. And use the promo code CULTURE. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine delivered directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Did Steve finish his book edition? It's Wednesday, February 3rd, 2016. And on today's program, we're going to talk about The People v. O.J. Simpson, the new FX miniseries created by Ryan Murphy that revisits the famous case of 25 years ago. And then in our series of talking about Oscar contenders that we didn't get around to last year, we're finally going to talk about Room, the movie that everybody puts off watching because who wants to see a story about a woman kept in sexual captivity? And finally, Rihanna's Auntie, her new album, Much Anticipated. Is it good? And what do we think of Rihanna anyway? Joining me today is Slate's movie critic, Dana Stevens. Hello, Dana. Hey, Julia. And Steve is not here, but that is only because I told him, hey, if you finish your book on Monday, it seems like a lot to have to prep a whole show on Tuesday. Let's get a special guest and give you a break. So we've invited Wesley Morris, a critic at large at The New York Times and one of our favorite guests, to sit in Steve's chair. Hi, Wesley. Hi. Thanks for sitting in Steve's chair. I can't believe Steve's going to finish his book. So, How many pages is this book, by the we, way? Do well, we know? Hold on. We're going to have the opportunity to ask him. Although he didn't come in for the show today, he is going to endorse. So we're going to call him at noon and we'll ask him if he actually finished and he'll endorse something with us. So you can grill him about all these things. In I the hope it can be like endorsing finishing a book, which I'm in the process. Of. <laughs> Hopefully you can uh, ping him for tips. And I guess I should also note that in the Slate Plus, Lot Plus segment of the show, we will have a little extra Steve time and we'll grill him about what transpired during his month away. 
All right, guys, let's dig in. Let's talk about the show that everyone who knows or cares about TV has been telling me is going to be the biggest thing in the whole wide world this spring. The People v. O.J. Simpson. This is a mini series airing on FX. It is created by Ryan Murphy. And it's basically an adaptation of the Jeffrey Tubin book about the O.J. Simpson trial and takes the 25th anniversary of that event as an occasion to revisit it essentially as a true crime narrative, but one that spirals out on a ton of topics that are still incredibly pertinent today, including race in America, race and policing in America, celebrity, fame, violence, sex, and the rest. Before we get into what you guys made of this series, let's listen to a clip from the show. We've sighted a white Ford Bronco north of Irvine Center Drive. Stay in your car, sir. Sir, step out of the vehicle. No, no, hell no. Sir, you need to turn your engine off and step from the vehicle now. Do you know what's going on here? Okay, to the back seat with a gun to his head. Can I speak with Mr. Simpson? No, no, I ain't speaking to nobody. I ain't speaking to nobody. Tell him the gun's loaded. What, what, you tell him. All right, Wesley, what did you make of this show? It's extremely watchable in, in both the worst and possible way, I think. You know, this comes from a TV universe that I object to, basically, which is Ryan Murphyville. Uh-huh. Um, I have a lot of complicated feelings about Ryan Murphy. They're not that complicated. I don't like him. <laughs> um, I don't like his shows. I don't know him as a person. I do not. His idea of entertainment disturbs me, and I know he's, it means, it, he means it to be disturbing. But I also find that there's like a real contempt for mankind in it, and he would say the opposite, that he's using you know, man's lowest moments and most, you know, primal disgusting urges to get at something that is ultimately universally human about us all. Blech, whatever. Um, but you so mean you find him bottom feeding kind of as I a find content him, producer. Yes. And I, I don't know that there's anything there's there's infrequently. I mean, there's a lot in there. I think American Horror Story, which I've seen three seasons of, there's a lot in those shows. You know, I think he also is a manic depressive entertainer. And, you know, Glee is the manic part and everything else is kind of depressive. And then within each of those, each one of those programs like Nip Tuck and and American Horror Story and Glee, you know, there's there are ups and downs in that, too. But it should be noted that it's not just a Ryan Murphy thing. This is a Larry uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. They wrote. They're writing supervisors for this show. Yeah, um, and they and, and the script existed. Producers. They they wrote the script. I mean, I I have mixed feelings about Ryan Murphy broadly as well. But at least one interview with him that I saw about this, he talked about it as the project he wanted to do after the Normal Heart, which I think is another Ryan Murphy production that wasn't. It sure is. <laughs> but it was not in the spirit of like, let me have a thousand winks per second. Let me kind of be exploiting camp in a crazy right. way. No, it was, just it was a more of a like per second. But it was a straight-ish. Because it was very not straight in some ways. But anyway, The Normal Heart was like a <laughs> fairly traditionally told, 
here is a piece of history you should know about type story that felt different than like the sensationalism of some of his other stuff. And I think that you, it might be worth drawing a distinction between those two parts of the Ryan Murphy oeuvre because this felt this didn't feel like the most Ryan Murphy thing I ever saw. Well, and as no. glitzily as it's presented, I mean, the camera work feels kind of inevitably very TV-ish, very Ryan Murphy. Yeah. Always like the, the horror the, music that plays under every single scene. Every time the Ford Bronco appears, there's kind of like a leet motif of dread. It's yeah. But what within that, as I understand it, he is trying to tell a factual story, right? I mean, yes, the, the writers yes, consulted yes, yes. closely with Tubin. They they aren't introducing details. They may be condensing some things in terms of time, but I don't think that this is there's anything fabricated. No, and I think I mean to me the thing that's mystifying about this. So I I should stipulate I came into this with, with incredibly high expectations because really? oh interesting okay. yeah like the whole culture team at Slate has been like this is the greatest thing ever and my husband who works on TV like read the script ages ago and was like this thing's going to be huge it's going to be so good it's so fascinating so I maybe I'm alone in that but I feel like the general culture buzz machine had me up to a state mm-hmm. of high hype about it <laughs> the general culture buzz machine the culture buzz machine of my particular micro life I should say. Um, And I found it very well made, really interesting to watch. It seems like a very smart moment to revisit this case and like a moment when you might be able to explore rich and interesting themes. But I had the feeling sometimes watching the show that I was just watching like a Wiki, like a reenactment of a Wikipedia mm-hmm. page and like a really interesting Wikipedia page, like one of those Wikipedia pages that if you don't know the story, you read it and are like, I can't believe that happened. And then that happened. And that turned out to be the guy who was the father of those guys. I'm referring to Robert Kardashian, who was um, an OJ confidant, one of his lawyers and was the dad of Kim et al. Uh, played by David Schwimmer in the show. Played by David Schwimmer in the show. And and Chris Kardashian is played really greatly by Selma Blair. She is number three in the OJ, People versus OJ Simpson power rankings. And it's number two, para- Sarah Paulson. I would say Cuba Gooding Jr. is number two. Sarah Paulson's a close number three. Sarah Paulson does not, her, her performance doesn't She's kick Marcia in. She's Marsha Clark, we should She's say. She's Marsha Clark. Prosecuting attorney. She does not, the performance doesn't kick in until episode three for me, where the episode is sort of devoted to, where all that breeziness and, and sort of clenched frustration that she's bringing to this part have real outlets and places to go. My only concern with Sarah Paulson in the Ryan Murphy universe, she also is a regular trooper on on American Horror Story, is that now she's sort of becoming a cigarette actress. <laughs> and so that she smokes on pretty much all her, most of the parts I see her in, she's smoking. She's got, I think she's smoking in, in Carol. She's Everybody's in a small smoking part in Carol. Carol. She, I think even when she's not smoking, I feel like she is, like the way she holds her hair. I don't know. This is this is an aside, but you'll notice you can play a really fun, like, Sarah Paulson drinking game, is she smoking? <laughs> like, every time she lights up, takes a puff, puts out a cigarette. Or a smoking game, if you right, really right, want to wreck her. yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I love Sarah Paulson's performance so much so that I was like, I think I'm going to get that haircut. Um, Shut up. <laughs> but just to go back to the Wikipedia page. So I think the question for me is, does the show have something interesting to say about this case? The case was fascinating and profound and lurid and confusing and had so many interesting moments in it. The material is so great. So the question for me of how we judge the show is like, what is the show doing with the material? And is it doing something interesting and provocative or not? And to me, the answers to those questions really 
differ depending on which thread we're following. So I think part of why I like Sarah Paulson's performance and the storyline in general that that follows the legal case and sort of how the defense team began to add experts and strategies and began to realize that making a racial case against the LAPD was going to be the, the potential way to get OJ off and the sort of blindness and then set of constraints around their thinking that led the prosecutors to completely fail to see this and fail to to deal with it and take it seriously as a potential line of defense reasoning like that those forces mobilizing and moving and a bunch of powerful white people beginning to understand how how the racial aspects of the case could read to jurors to the press basically it's like a bunch of white idiots who don't have to think about race and don't really know how to think about race learning clumsily how to and how it might play out in this case. And the the kind of tragedy and eye-opening of that, I think, is played really interestingly and subtly by all of the actors and written um, written interestingly in a way that maybe makes sense, given the focus of Tubin's book. The stuff about the Kardashians, to me, is like the worst of Mad Men it's, it's... with the head, you know, the playing with the dry cleaner bags. Like every time the Kardashians are on screen, except for Selma Blair as Chris, who I really like that performance. It's, you know, there's literally a scene in the second episode where, or maybe it's the third, where Swimmer sits down with like the gaggle of girls and is That's like... That's the worst episode <laughs> of TV you're going to see in in many a year. What what is the actual same? Fame is empty without a virtuous heart. Ladies, ladies, I have written it down. He's turning to his quotes. Oh, I'm not going to find it. Oh, wait. Fame is fleeting. It's hollow. It means nothing without a loving heart. (laughs) Wow, but you know what's playing in the background of that scene, by the way? It's Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton is playing. That scene, that whole episode is very bad. Those, those That's the first episode that those two guys didn't write. Karaszewski and and Alexander. Um, That's interesting. And there, there's another scene in that same episode where Kato Kalin gets sort of like uh, flashed by some girls in yes, a Corvette. And what does he and say? He said, "Wow, fame is complicated." Yeah, man. And it's like, okay, if that is all you have to say, then it just feels a little bit but, lurid and cheap to be revisiting this territory. But, but I, we haven't mentioned the fact, which I think is the boldest gambit that I've seen in the show so far. I haven't finished all ten episodes, but opening on the Rodney King footage and a whole sort of montage of the Rodney King trial. Before even getting into anything to do with OJ, is it was a very bold gambit for the. But it doesn't of go show. anywhere. No, I mean, it I feel Not like so this, the problem with this. There's two problems with this show. The first of which is that it it would claim to be interested in the cultural climate of 1994 or the early 90s. It presents an awareness of what that climate was, but cannot find a way through four episodes, for, through the four episodes I've watched. That to bring that into the unfolding of the drama, and I think the key there's a lot of keys here, and they're all sort of locked up in the in the issue of race. And the show, to its credit, is interested in the dynamic between OJ and Johnny Cochran. But Johnny Cochran is actually, I mean, in the, the show understands Cochran's importance to the defense's shift in 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 tactic. Right? Johnny Cochran is a kind of civil rights lawyer basically doing good for Los Angeles. I mean, he was committed to defending black people from the aggression of the LAPD. The caricature that comes out of him during the trial, the one that that Johnny Cochran we all know, is this flashy guy who is willing to, quote, play the race card, unquote, to win a case, which is all true. But 
I think what he brought to the case is, a, is, an, is, an, acute, is an acute understanding of black people's sense of national sense, historical sense, deep sense of, of wrong having been done to them over time. And the incredible irony, and again, the show picks up on this, but it's very sort of superficial in a way because it hasn't found a way to psychologize any of this stuff, you know, which is why I can kind of laugh at Sarah Paul. What do you mean by psychologize? I don't really know that anybody's sense of of behavior, like why the, the whys aren't quite there in this show. And I don't, I mean, every once in a while an actor will do something interesting that will, that will get at that. And I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is, is acting from the inside. He's obviously miscast. He's like the last person you would pick to play O.J. Simpson. He's half his size. This is like Rod Tidwell being on trial for murder, not <laughs> the guy he played in Jerry Maguire, not O.J. Simpson. And yet... And, and do you think also in terms of the history of his casting, he is miscast? In terms of how do you mean? Yeah, that? I mean just in terms of like the the persona of Cuba Gooding. Yeah, Junior, no, no, as we I know mean, him. It's the opposite. I mean, he's the opposite of OJ. Who would you have wanted to have play him? There's this is this is gets to my other thing, which is that the only person who could play OJ Simpson is kind of OJ Simpson. I mean, and you what you want in that part is an actor, and probably Cuba Gooding Jr. is the only person who can give you a sense of drama. I mean, I think he is really good in the part. He just isn't O.J. Simpson. And so when the cop is look, walking in the early scene in the first episode when he's walking through the house and he's looking around to see, you know, he's at the murder scene and there's a he flashes his flashlight on the wall and you see a shot of Cuba Gooding Jr. And he's like, you're like, oh, wait, is he does he recognize that he's in Cuba Gooding Jr.'s house or is it <laughs> or is it O.J.'s? We don't know. Um, so I, I just feel like. It, it, it's just an interesting. It's an interesting casting choice because no one's watching this thinking he is getting OJ. You know, Willa Paskin made a point in her review of the show for us, which is really good. I'm going to say that OJ's performance is the one that seems the most hard to pin down because mm-hmm. you can't quite see the man he was, the Titan, and you can't quite see the man he becomes in prison as sort of this the wreck that he is today. But her argument is that 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 kind of works because this whole moment is this moment of transition for him where he's he's this volatile thing who's between being a star and a smooth hero and a convicted murderer and what is he actually in jail for right now? Uh, armed a, robbery, basically. Right. He, he's a person whose life is in the process of, you know, like flying apart. He is the hardest part in this movie because he's the person who during the trial was the least present. Do you know what I mean? So probably what's going to happen in the remaining episodes after episode three is he's just going to be a presence. And so what he has to do as an actor, I'm assuming, is establish a kind of turmoil. I also think we should talk a little bit about Nicole Brown Simpson. There's a documentary that I saw that's going to come out in the summer, probably around the time of the of the actual anniversary of, of the murders themselves. It's very, very good. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, but anyway, this documentary has a moment devoted to the actual murders and the forensics of the murders and the playing of the 911 calls. And there were, there were several. It plays all of them. And this show takes the 911 call. And I found this to be like the, the bottom of the, of the barrel taste-wise. It takes the 911 call... And I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the thing that you need to know is that these two people died horrible, horrible deaths. 
and it turns it into this public spectacle where everybody's sort of like listening to the call and you as a viewer can't really hear it's actually it's the actual 911 call that's the real that's really it her sounds, voice it sounds it sounds to me like the actual it's it's OJ in the that's the actual OJ Simpson in the background i don't know i found that a little bit distasteful i think the thing that you that you run up against in doing this at all is you have to sort of deal with this stuff head on you can't kind of skirt the issue because there's a sort of moral weight that you lose. And I feel like if you don't carry around for every single episode that these two people died in this very grisly way, I mean, and I know it comes up as a, as a plot point and in this, as, as exposition, you just really forget how awful those crime photos were from the scene. And this is a guy on trial for doing that. Yeah. And Julia Go. Sorry. Well, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that is you've put your finger on what for me is the question about the show, which is, does the show earn the charge that it gets from revisiting this case, which is incredibly fascinating in its details and does speak to all kinds of themes that we're interested in now in a way that's really powerful? Like, it's a good idea to make this show. And the question for me that I still haven't decided based on the first three episodes is like, does the show have enough to say about what happened to earn the right to go back and excavate all this stuff for us? Or is it being incredibly glib about it in a way that ultimately is like unseemly in a moral way? And I'm not decided yet. I hear mm. you about that call, but I think that's part of why I think Sarah Paulson's performance is so yes, great and powerful yes. because she, she's committed. She carries yes. the weight of that crime with her. And, and in fact, her ability to see and and not forget how awful that crime was and how horrible this woman's life was and how in some ways her safety was endangered by the cop favoring OJ because he was a celebrity rather than framing him because he was a black guy. She she can't see any other way to see it. The truth of the horror of that crime is so pure to her that it makes her a worse prosecutor because it's so apparent. And I but I I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I I think there's enough interesting stuff going on in here that I I want to watch the rest of it yeah, and I mean, hear what people think about it and see whether it earns it. I think it could still. I'm with you. I, I am. I'm going to keep watching the show. I stopped watching after episode four because I wanted to watch it with everybody else. I mean, it's compelling even in its badness. It's still compelling. All right. Well, the show is The People v. O.J. Simpson. It's on FX. Uh, given that we couldn't stop talking about it, you should probably all go watch it and come talk about it with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Before we move on to our next topic, we'll have a word from our sponsor. The Slate Culture Gap is sponsored today by The Great Courses, and they have a new feature they're offering, The Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service. This is a subscription series of courses that you can sign up for, and you can get both print and video and interactive materials that will actually just walk you through learning some interesting thing that you've always wanted to learn. So you can learn the fundamentals of photography from a National Geographic photographer, Joel Satore. You can have the mysteries of the universe explained to you by Neil deGrasse Tyson, or take a tour of Italy led by a Smithsonian historian. Essentially, the internet is there, and you can kind of learn a little bit about everything, but the great courses offer a way for you to go deep without actually having to go back to school. The Great Courses is offering our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. You can watch one of the most popular courses, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for absolutely free. The Everyday Gourmet is developed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America, my favorite cooking school that shares a name with the CIA. That's just badass off the, off the top. And it's a great opportunity to learn from a master chef, like how to make bechamel sauce. That has always seemed very confusing to me, or the fundamentals of a good soup stock. For a limited time, Culture Gap Fest listeners can stream this course, 
the Everyday Gourmet, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time. So hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash culture. All right, on to our next topic. Today, as part of our series of talking about Oscar contenders that we didn't get around to discussing in their actual year of release, we're going to talk about Room. And I think it is perhaps indicative of how people feel about Room that we have put off watching and talking about Room. <laughs> Dana, of course, saw it when it came out and, and, and wrote a great review of it. But I, though I admire Brie Larson and though the reviews were good, like, on no night are you like, I want to go watch something about, like, a kid born in sexual captivity and the his world, which is confined to room, the room of the title. And so I put off and put off and put off and put off and put off watching it until finally Wesley came on and was like, no, we're talking about room. And so out of deference <laughs> to our revered guest, I was like, fine, I'll fucking watch room. And it's so good. And it's, I loved it. So... I will just start there. But Dana, you actually watched it in when it was released, like a normal person and or like a paid movie critic. Uh, tell us what you thought of Room. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, my response would be, well, I, I find it kind of a miraculous and utterly moving experience. And yet I don't think it completely works as a movie. I think it, because of Brie Larson's performance and that of Jacob Tremblay, the little boy who plays her little boy, I think he's about eight in real life when he plays the kid, right? And the kid is supposed to be five. They're both incredible and their performances are sort of inter intertwined in this incredible way that makes their intimacy seem so real. It makes me feel like Brie Larson must have just, you know, spent a, a summer living with Jacob Tremblay to get that much trust and, and establish that relationship with him. I think there are moments when the movie lays some things on a little bit thick. It was written by Emma Donahue, who also wrote the novel it's based on. So when a novelist adapts their own book into a screenplay, I mean, she, I think she does it remarkably well, and a lot of the apparatus falls away, but not quite enough of the book's apparatus falls away, in my opinion. I think the voiceover could have been taken entirely out of the film, and that also the music is too ever-present and is too emotionally cueing. And those two things throughout the movie made me feel like I wanted to scrape them off so that the beautiful, shining thing underneath them, which is really the story of this mother-son relationship and how they survive in this incredibly adverse circumstance, could, could shine through more. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I'm curious to hear how Julia feels about it, since I feel exactly the opposite of, of Julia. <laughs> <laughs> you were dying to see it and you hated it? No, I mean, I had already seen it. And I have been carrying around my distaste for this movie for months. <laughs> And good, let's hash it out. I mean, I, I did not read the book. So I'm I'm coming to this as a person who's experiencing this movie, this story fresh, so to speak. But what I don't like about it is I don't like the device. I mean, it's not just the voiceover. It's the whole infantilizing it's what the I child's feel is, point of view device. I, I don't I don't like that. I find that morally troubling in an inherently immoral situation, right? I mean, I don't know. I find the the device makes it easier to watch. I mean, I've made this comparison before to like something like 127 hours, which is it should be grueling and impossible to watch. The Werner Herzog version of that movie it wouldn't have gotten nearly as much acclaim, I guess. 
but I feel like it would have been more honest to the situation that guy was going through. I feel like this, it's not dishonest, I guess, because it's from the point of view of the child, but I think in doing that, it's able to cut a lot of corners because the mother is protecting him from the real horrors of what's going on. And I know we're sophisticated enough to be able to piece it together. But I do think it does something cheapening to the stakes in some way. Here's my theory of the case slash defense of the movie that might actually just make it sound worse. But I would argue, and, and more re- morally repugnant, and, and maybe we'll just turn more listeners off. But I think that this is a movie that's really about motherhood and mm-hmm. not about captivity, rape, escape, mm. and other things. That it's about family and about the power you have to create a world with the people that you love and how that power can change your life and can mm. sustain you and can make you a make you a person who can withstand things. And maybe that's cheap to use a story as awful as the Fritzl story to create a create a world that's fundamentally about that. But I found the performances and the relationship, I think you put it beautifully, Dana, that the tenderness and rawness and realness of that relationship and of having like all the frustrations of being the mother of a young boy like just those normal frustrations on top of the fact that you've been in sexual slavery removed from the world for seven years. The details of that storytelling and the power of that relationship were so moving to me that I just didn't care. Like I didn't even notice the stupid score. Maybe I was just being manipulated by it. And the voiceover was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, usually my trichometer would have been like, cut that the fuck out. <laughs> but I just but thought you were you were the story guy. Yeah, it mm-hmm. just really got me. And I, I hadn't read the book for similar reasons. I was like, why do I want to read about this goddamn awful thing? It just sounds terrible. But I thought that it showed, I mean, you know, motherhood, like, what is this, a Mother's Day card? Is this a Lifetime movie? Like, it, it sounds sort of obvious, like, the abide. So, basically, I'm making the case that this movie is about the abiding power of a mother's love, which, like, ugh, but, no, like, no, you no, don't no. actually, you don't actually you. see that, because that's such a, like, hard subject to do without it feeling like a, like a pop-up Valentine card or a Whitman sampler, like, I don't actually think people go near it that often. Like, people don't, really like what's the last great portrayal in a movie you've seen of a mother's relationship with her young kid that takes the kid really seriously and the kid's point of view it does act as this buffering device it does make you feel you are made to feel safe in this horrible world because you're put in the shoes of of jack the kid played by jacob tremblay so beautifully but it does to me that didn't feel exploitative or like an excuse to get you in this like lurid sex dungeon without contemplating the merits it was experientially beautiful and and beautiful that you could even though you were so entrenched in his point of view as a like grown up who understands how the world works you could see all of the complicated emotions that Brie Larson's character Ma or Joy is feeling and is protecting her kid from across her face like I just thought that performance yeah, was I mean, gorgeous yeah and a huge huge amount I mean I just think a gigantic amount of the credit for this movie not being apparently not for Wesley, but I, for you and me, definitely, Julia, not treacly and not sort of, um, I don't know, idealizing that mother-son relationship, but really like getting down into the, you know, getting its hands dirty with like what it is to be a parent, right? And to love your child. It, uh, that credit goes to Brie Larson. She's just unbelievable in the role. I agree with you. I think she's, I think she's good. I, my problem is I don't like the form. And the form for an hour, at least, for the first half of that movie is, is, is the whole thing. It's all cinematography and all voiceover and all music and it's all 
sugar and whipped cream to me. I don't know. I, I I'm much more capable of handling the grueling movie that this actually is for her. And I think see, I think this is what I was saying about scraping off. Right, <laughs> like right. I, I actually think that the sugar and the whipped cream, I can point to what it is. To me, it, it was the music, it was the voiceover. And it was the it was the attempt essentially to reconstruct the child's point of view in a way that you can't you can on the page, but you sort of it's harder to do with film. Yeah, I, and I like I actually think the cinematography I would separate out from that because I thought the cinematography, the kids' eye viewishness of it, I thought was effective. I would agree. Like, I don't, I don't, think I don't it's one of the gooey layers. I don't to think me, that no. was treacly. I thought that was part of what helped you understand. I think as a formal trick, it's fine. I don't I don't think the thing that it actually is trying to do. It just bothered me because it's part of the infantilization device that it I mean, it's not that the movie wants to do that. That's the effect it has on me. But I mean, I just want to say that, like, I think for me, Brie Larson, that performance is different in the second half of the movie and works much more effectively for me. And in some ways, yes, it's more conventional from an acting standpoint. But that character, it's the point at which the character is is going through something that you really want to see an entire movie about. My other complaint with this movie, I don't ever want to hear the word room use the way this kid uses the word room. And then once other people start using room the same way, I, that was when I was really done. Like, I need a definite article, I need and an, I need it now. What the F? It just, that really annoyed me. We have to sort of cater to this, to the fact that she forgot to teach him articles. Like, eh, I object. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we disagree about Room. Do you think people shouldn't see it, or do you no. think they should? No, I mean see it's it too late our... now. It's nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, some important ones. I mean, see it. Be part of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Join us, but maybe not Wesley, on Facebook.com/slash/CultureVest and uh, help adjudicate this battle royale. All right. Before our final topic, we have a word from our second sponsor. That's right, Julia. This late Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Bowl and Branch, who have reinvented sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. So Julia and I have already talked about our love for our Bowl and Branch sheets. Wesley, we have you here. I want to know how you feel about sheets. They're important to me. And what do you like in a good sheet? Colors. Oh, yeah? That's more important not, than not, weight, texture? Uh, thread count is important, but so I've discovered that like I've gone crazy and gotten, quote, really nice sheets, unquote. Well, Bowl and Branch, and I believe this is on their website, actually contest that thread count is a meaningful way of measuring the quality of a sheet. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm with them. I don't believe that either. I mean, I like, I like all kinds of different sheet companies. I've got about, I've got six sets of sheets all from different places, and I've gotten rid of the ones that I don't use. So I'm open, I'll, I'll add a, I'll add a seventh set. All right, yeah, next time, this, uh, next time you recycle some of your sheets. Yeah, Try I'll, some ball happily, I'll happily do that. Well, here's your chance. You can go online to Bowl and Branch, that's B-O-L-L and branch.com, and try them risk-free for 30 nights. And it gets even better. Right now, you can get 20% off your entire order, sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, scarves, whatever they sell, at bowlandbranch.com. Use the promo code CULTURE. That's bowlandbranch.com with the promo code CULTURE. So, Wesley, next time you're on the show, I expect you to check back in on your new sheets. I will report back on my new sheets. I, I'm going to do it, I swear. All right. I can't wait. On to our final topic. All right. So our work here today is to dissect both Rihanna's new album, Auntie, and Rihanna. I'm not sure we've... Have we ever done, like, Rihanna proper as a topic Only on the show? Only in the context of summer strut songs, I believe. Yeah. I don't... And, in, and many endorsements by me, I believe. Well, I'm glad to be here for this. 
<laughs> Bring it. All right. Uh, we'll start with you then, Wesley. <laughs> what do you have a grand unified oh, she... theory of Rihanna, or just or no, should we start with the a... album? No, you probably have one of those. Uh, I mean, let's talk about the record first. Rihanna is the sort of artist who specialized or seemed to not mind putting out a record almost every year. I think she skipped one year. Uh, and then there was the expectation that sometime in 2013, I think 2014, uh, this album would come out. There were teaser singles or something. She had, you know, Bitch Better Have My Money and uh, Four or Five Seconds and American Oxygen. And it all seemed like, wow, she's releasing all these singles and yet there's no album. What's going on? But as it turns out, she was doing something that I've never heard anybody really do. I mean, outside of mixtape world, which is you drop a bunch of singles and determine based on, I mean, I don't know what her rationale was for not including them on Anti, but they're not there. Um, And then you release a whole other single (laughs) with Drake. I don't like this as an album, but I do like several of the songs. And I think Rihanna at this point doesn't, she might not consider herself an album artist. But given... aren't some people saying that this is her attempt to be an album artist? I don't really get that, except in that all these songs have a similar pace or tone, I guess. But I don't see them as fitting around some larger theme or telling a story or inventing a character. I or mean, doing they those are sorts sort of, of sonically unified up to a point, but they're not they're just not all that interesting. I think Loud is a really good pop record. I think Unapologetic is a really good pop record that has. And I think Unapologetic is really pushing toward something like a sound that is interesting and complicated and a little bit dangerous. And some of the ideas expressed there are too. I think this is a natural extension. This album, I think anti is, is, is an extension of that, but I mean, it's called anti. She's completely fucking with us. You know? I like how I mean, Julia pronounces it anti, because then I picture that it's a U N T I E. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, the thing with Rihanna that you, that I often think about is, what makes these songs Rihanna songs? Sometimes with a Rihanna song, you can kind of imagine other artists doing it because she's gotten songs from, from you know, basically the songwriting mall. And then there are songs where it, you can only hear Rihanna. I mean, you can only hear the Rihanna-ness of it. And mostly they have to do with, I mean, in some ways it's her use of patois. It's, it's the, there's a the sort of reggae vibe that goes through a song. Her collaborations don't sound like anybody else could do them. She's a really good collaborator artist. Four or five seconds is, I don't know. I mean, anybody, I guess, could have done it, but the rawness of her voice, which is something we should probably talk about, which is her singing on this album, which is very, very good. And Um, which differs wildly from song to song. She explores so much vocal range in this in this album and I'm, as which should not come as a surprise I know much less about Rihanna's back catalog than you two guys I basically know the big hits but um, but she there's sound... so many so you're you're good yeah yeah I'm still set right and, <laughs> and I mean of course I know her as a tabloid fodder domestic abuse victim kind of figure right, right much right. more than so than as a singer but yeah she has an amazing voice and it can do all these different things I think my favorite song on this album might be that very short two minute song Higher that she sings oh, yeah. as if in making a drunk call to a boyfriend late at night yep. and her, her voice gets to this scratchy, vulnerable, almost showing some of its weaknesses kind of register that, that I really love because it doesn't have the pop polish that you're right. used to hearing. Let's listen to that. I'm sorry about the other night And I know I could be more creative And come up with poetic lines But I'm tired of obsessing 
Yeah, I love the soulfulness and the kind of scratchiness in her voice there. I also love the first line, this whiskey is making me feel pretty, which is especially (laughs) great to hear from Rihanna because it makes you imagine that there are days she wakes up not feeling pretty. I love that song, too, because I think so much of Rihanna's persona, and she's definitely a pop artist of persona. One of the reviews of this piece was called her, I think, the high priestess of Don't Give a Fuck, which seemed apt to me. I forget who wrote it. I love that she's admitting to giving a fuck in that song, which which I think is not her typical move. Right? Yeah, you get her, you give her a little whiskey. Well, and stay. It's, it's a little bit the character she plays in stay, right? In her right. huge hit. I mean, I think the thing that's most interesting about her, I mean, first of all, artists have been trying to get close to Etta James and that rawness and that need and that ache and that power, that sort of vulnerable sound in their voice. Christina Aguilera has gotten really close to that sort of wounded but, but strong. Yeah. yeah. Christina Aguilera is, I mean, her voice can do a lot more than Rihanna's voice can do. But there's something really beautiful about how she really gets to, I mean, it's sort of the classic blues move, right? You're de- I mean, Billie Holiday, Etta James, people, those are the two artists to me who who get there most frequently, most sort of uh, viscerally for me. And this song gets, it, it hits that same spot. But the song before that is Love on the Brain. I mean, I would say that Higher is more like Billie Holiday and Love on the Brain is the Etta James song, actually. And it's just a really good blues record, like a good sort of Memphis. It's got a nice Memphis sound to it. And she it's like, you know how you there's a kind of person who will like come back from the gym, get home or get in the locker room and see their body and be like, oh, selfie time. And they'll take a picture of themselves. <laughs> Rihanna, like, came back from the vocal coach or, like, was doing some runs somewhere and was just like, oh, wait, <laughs> I got this. Love on the brain, y'all. Hit the <laughs> <laughs> Get in the studio. We're doing love on the brain. I mean, her voice sounds so good. Well, the thing I love about it, it's not like Christina or no, Beyonce. Like no, her no, voice, no, no. Her voice has always had this, like, really unusual timbre, this almost... It's like pleasantly nasal or something. I don't know quite yep. how to describe it, mm-hmm. but it has this like kind of pinched edge to it. I didn't always still like it. Really beautiful, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear it, it; it's less of a loose instrument on something like Ponda Replay, right? Like right. her breakout right. track. It, it's you hear that, and you don't hear much else. But she's like doing super interesting things with it here. Well, you the thing about her for me that it has taken me a long time to reconcile, and it still makes her interesting. And I like to think about her in terms of the other soldiers on the front lines of pop stardom, right? Like, what is it that makes her different from from everybody else? And initially, I didn't think there was any use for her. I mean, the songs were good. Like, Umbrella's a good song, but it's not be good because she did it, necessarily. It just happened to be a song by the woman who did Ponder Replay, and you were forced to think, oh, wait, she might be, she might be for real. And I remember thinking that the Jay-Z rap on that sort of legitimized her in some way like that's what made that song for real and the song is great but 
I just sort of thought I thought she'd be a one-hit wonder. You know, like a dance, she'd have a really good club hit, and we'd never hear from her again. But she kept, she stuck around. And then she stuck around and became more interesting the longer she was with us. Yeah, that's the thing that's really fascinating about her to me is that she kind of keeps revealing. She seems like she's growing up as a person and broadening her her skills, her tastes, her interests, her, you know, she's gotten really interested in fashion. She's and she she doesn't seem like a dressed puppet. She seems like she's kind of interested in interesting things about fashion. She feels like she she emerged as this thing that felt like a, a trope we've seen before, exactly the kind of like dance hall hit that maybe goes away and you never see her again, and that she just kind of kept tenaciously like putting her foot forward and doing the next thing, and the next thing keeps being interesting, and the interestingness feels more and more like it accretes to her own will and her own interests as mm-hmm. a musician and an artist and just a human. And I have to say, like, this album, I mean, I like the club tracks, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, people know my taste in music here. I enjoy... You want to strut. I want to strut. I like when Rihanna makes me feel like I'm at a fun party, no matter well, where I, I am. Well, I was going to say, I would just, after hearing you kind of deliver that verbal valentine to Rihanna just now, I was thinking of the email you sent around as we were prepping this week's show, saying, what is this slow jam bullshit? You were very, <laughs> you were very impatient with the con- with the consistent down-tempo nature of well, this album. Well, the whole album, I mean, it is not a fun album. The whole album basically sounds like you're having, like, bad sex with your ex-boyfriend. It's like a good ambiance soundtrack. Welcome to Rihanna. Well, <laughs> no, but, like, but like she doesn't always, like, the vibe is very kind of... It's not fun, basically, No, what it's saying, not right? a fun yes, vibe. Right. And I'm not going to play this album a lot. Like, these aren't tracks that I'm going to play on repeat. Even the singles, like, I don't think work is that interesting a single. Oh, really? It's fine. I love the humidity of that song, and I feel like the two of them are so good together. I mean, when I mean, I think this might be their third or fourth song together, and I just feel like she and Drake have a thing that is sexual and and, and I mean, I'm not I'm not ascribing any value to their relationship. It's just what you hear, and you hear this sort of playfulness between the two of them. That is so inviting to me. And that song just sounds really good. And it rhymes with Hotline Bling to me. Yes, it feels like um, an answer song to Hotline Bling. Like his his parts of it really sound like the character he is on Hotline Bling, like popping up in this Rihanna song and being... In some ways, the mood of Hotline Bling is similar to the mood of this album. It's kind of like after the fun part of the fling when the relationship gets uneasy and undefined and a little bit bitter and still kind of yearning, but basically down, except for I think Hotline Bling seems more fun to dance to. Yeah, I mean, but that's because Drake made it fun to dance to. I mean, wait till wait till we see the two of them at the Grammys or whatever. whatever whatever's going to happen with the two of them. All right. Uh, the album is Anti by Rihanna. I think you... Do you still have to like join Title to hear it? No, oh my God, you. that's a whole other problem. Her poor Title release. Oh my God, those people. No, let's for Title's in the topic for another day. In any event, listen to the songs. Come talk to us about her on Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest. All right, before we endorse, we have a final ad. I will confess that despite the fact that I was the wine column editor at Slate for many years, buying wine is confusing. It was much more confusing before I did that, and it's still confusing. Uh, And Into the Breach steps Club W, which promises that you'll never have to worry about being wine-free ever again. It's a revolutionary new wine club that sends you wine directly to your door, saving you all those bewildering trips to the grocery store. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you will love drinking. They do this with an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate so that you'll love every bottle you receive. 
Club W also offers a no-risk guarantee. I love this part. That's what you do not get even when you bravely choose a wine off the shelf in the wine store. And right now, they're also offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. So clubw.com slash culture to get 50% off your first order of wine. All right, it's time to endorse. And as a special treat, we've brought the man back from his book leave, Steve Metcalf. Steve, are you there? Uh, I'm I'm about half here, maybe three quarters. He's emerged from the wilderness. Steve, did you finish your book? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I let me put it this way, okay? I share an office with an architect friend of mine, a wonderful now 69, 70 year old guy, Peter. He can rig up anything, and about three weeks ago, he got one of those giant plastic red doomsday buttons from Staples or <laughs> oh, the fix-it button. Sl- yeah, exactly. You can slam it with the palm of your hand emphatically. And he rigged it up so that when I was done, I could stand up and uh, and give it a little slam dunk and send my file to my editor. And at 3 p.m. <laughs> yesterday, at 3 p.m. yesterday, 113,000 words went through the tubes of the internet after I slammed my palm down on the red button. I delivered a manuscript to Henry Holt. Yeah! Boom! Yay! I'm so excited, Steve. That is the best. <laughs> Hooray! Well, there's only one, there's one slight caveat, which is none of the words go with any of the other words. <laughs> even though there are 113,000 of them. They, it's, which is that in a, an achievement in and of itself. <gasps> I, would, I would definitely turn those pages. I can't wait to turn mm. those pages. I'm so excited, Steve. That is awesome. Hooray. All right. Well, mm-hmm. we will grill Steve further about how he made it across the finish line. And the red button seems like something that should be, you should like patent that and sell it to all authors. That sounds so satisfying uh, in our Slate Plus segment. But first, we must endorse. Uh, Steve, we'll let you like come to room temperature and start. I'll start in the room here. Dana, Dana, na, 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 tell us, what are you endorsing? <laughs> Well, since last week I went highbrow and did kind of a Steve Metcalf and endorsed a French podcast that only a small percentage of our listeners will be able to understand, uh, I'm going to go very goofy this week and endorse something extremely silly but fun, which is a 12-minute movie called Anyone Can Quantum. It was directed by Alex Winter of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He plays Bill and has also become a director in the years since. And, uh, and <laughs> essentially the story of this Anyone Can Quantum video is Stephen Hawking playing himself plays a game of quantum chess, which is a new computer game that's going to, I guess, actually exist and be downloadable in the near future with Paul Rudd. And uh, and whoever is going to win this quantum chess game will get to speak at this Caltech event about um, quantum physics. It's completely ridiculous. The idea is absurd. It was basically made, I think, as a kind of promotion for this Caltech event and as a fundraiser, the Kickstarter fundraiser for the uh, the actual quantum chess game. But it's, uh, it's extremely fun to watch. And it made me really excited for the uh, Bill and Ted isn't there a Bill and Ted 3 that's coming out this year? Uh, rumor. I mean, I don't think it's a rumor. I think it actually... Yeah, I think it exists, happen. and Alex Winter directed it. So, yeah, this is a little bit of a, of a preview of um, of the goofiness of that. And uh, even if you don't understand quantum physics or chess, it kind of explains both to you in this, um, in this crazy 12-minute video. Can, can we just pause to stipulate that Dana's, like, come-down lowbrow endorsement <laughs> involves Stephen Hawking, quantum physics, and chess? So we really want to slum it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't try to... This is a Caltech promotional video. Yeah, the the Alex Winter part was 
but you I didn't... Did, that was supposed to distract us from noticing what you were actually endorsing? <laughs> but we didn't mention the time-traveling Keanu Reeves element, which really just brings it all together. He narrates the whole thing as Keanu Reeves 100 years in the future, because uh, Keanu Reeves, of course, doesn't age. No, he is not aged. I will watch that, but I do want to stipulate all of those caveats. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Wesley, what have you got? Um, mine is sort of... Uh, abstract endorsement. Um, My sister was here over the weekend and we did some running around New York City and she has three kids. She brought two of them with her and she left her husband behind and we rode the subway a lot and this is now an opportunity for me to just endorse kindness. (laughs) We were on a crowded subway. My sister has a two and a half year old daughter. Do you think anybody got up to give my sister a seat when we got on a crowded ass subway? The answer is no. So what I do pretty much for all women with children is I make a dude get up. Like, I just pick a guy, the nearest person near the woman with the child child or the pregnant woman, and I'm like, hey, this lady might want to sit up. I just want to say to the people that I'm asking to get up, just get up! (laughs) Look up! People in cities of the world listening to this podcast, get up. When you see a woman at the bottom of the stairwell with a stroller... Ask her if she wants your help, because you know what? She probably does. I've just never experienced such gratitude from so many people when you just offer to help a stroller get up the steps at a subway stop. It is the most frustrating thing for me to watch a pregnant woman on a subway just stand there in... I mean, she doesn't seem to be in agony, but she's always so happy when she gets that seat. And she won't say no. You're not insulting her. If she doesn't want it, she won't take it. But just offer it. Just offer it. Look up when you're on the subway, people, and see if there's anybody who might want to sit. Old people count, too. They're, the worst they can say is no. You need to get your ass up. That's so what you're endorsing is not so much kindness. It's just like... Well, okay. Well, this it's, is also just not an endorsement. This is a castigation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm endorsing looking up. I'm endorsing like engaging with your fellow man and seeing what else he or she might need. And in most cases, it's women who want to sit because they have a child standing between their legs or in their in their bodies and are tired because they worked all day. Damn it. Sorry, I'm done. (laughs) Whoever comes next is going to look so morally small (laughs) next to Wesley's endorsement. (laughs) I think that's my cue. Steve. Julia. Um, All right. Well, with all my heart, I want to endorse never, ever writing another fucking book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you realize that Wesley and I are both currently engaged in that that very unfortunate project, right? Well, I if I could too have late to back out now. Prophylactically, if I could have kept you from doing it, Dana, but I, I'll I I'm if you like, could be a time traveling Keanu Reeves, you'd go back and tell me and West and not sign the. I wave to you from across the river sticks. <laughs> turn, around, turn around now. Go back. Give them the money. If you haven't spent the money, if you've spent the money, well, they don't give it all to, to you up front, Steve. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that enough of an endorsement, or do you want? Um, that can be it. Do you want? I, that that rings be. clear to me. You're allowed to come out of of your uh, your sprint with whatever the hell you want. That's fine with me. Yeah. All right. Very quickly, Jacques Rivette died, and Paris belongs to us. Is kind of a great misunderstood movie. You should watch it. All right. Well, we'll add that to the list. All right. Very quickly, my endorsement in honor and an homage to Wesley's endorsement the last time he endorsed. He endorsed Choop Socks, a sock brand, a proud tradition on the Culture Gab Fest of endorsing socks and then 
facing some light ridicule for it from both fellow panelists and I listeners. hear about it all the time, by the way. That comes up not infrequently. Thank you for endorsing the socks. Okay, fine. Maybe you hear it positively from people whose feet lives were changed. But I think feet lives can change again because Choop, which is the sock brand that Wesley endorsed that I promptly forgot and did not buy any socks of, did a partnership this winter with J. Crew and Smartwool. Smartwool makes unattractive but extremely comfortable, lightweight, wicking wool socks initially for hikers, but actually they're really good for hanging around your house on the weekend. So Choop plus Smartwool plus J. Crew, they're these like very beautiful, really cool color, kind of fair isle, complicated, intricate knit pattern type socks. And I think it's a limited edition partnership, so I'm not sure how much longer they will have them, but there are so many great colorways, as they say, in the fashion biz on the J. Crew website. And uh, it's a splurgy sock, but it's a really comfy weekend around the house in the winter sock. So I, bl- I got myself all the way through the, the blizzard in like three successive pairs of these socks. Highly recommend. Bless you. <laughs> Bless those feet. All right. Uh, so you could do all of our endorsements at once by offering someone a seat on the subway while not writing a book, wearing the socks, <laughs> and watching on your phone the uh, the Alex Winter video. You'd have to split screen the video <laughs> and the Jacques Rivette. Which would be a little complicated. I also like the Steve's. But endor- since you weren't writing the book, you'd have that much less to do. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Dana. Thanks, Julia. Wesley, thanks for coming. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Steve, thanks for writing a book and emerging from solitude. Next week, we will take you back full scale. I can't wait. Thank you so much. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Dana Steve, Stevens, Wesley Morris, and Steve Metcalf. I'm Julia Turner. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.